I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm here with Vina Jetty. Vina is the founding partner of Vive Funds, a unique commercial real estate firm that specializes in curating conservative opportunities for investors. Uh, I We were talking a little bit before we started recording. I, I sort of feel like even though it's the first time we're meeting, and, and by the way, thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, I, I do feel a little bit like I know you from <laughs> from other uh, avenues, but uh, I would love it if you would kind of just give us your background, tell us your story, kind of where you came from and, 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 and where you are today, which uh, I think that there's really a lot there. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here and happy to finally meet. Um, so thank you for having me. Uh, like you said, I'm Vina Jetty. I founded a company called Vive Funds. We focus on large uh, value-add multifamily in the Sun Belt. And one of the things that I would also say is we target those more conservative assets. We like to go into those really vanilla deals. Um, and we look at units that are 200 units and up with a strong preference to 300 and 400 unit plus deals. Uh, I started it, well, okay, so I took the shortcut in, right, because I come from a real estate family. My mom is actually a really successful real estate investor. Uh, now her and my dad are completely divested and retired, and they're purely LPs into my deals, so they do no more active um, management of their assets anymore, and so um, we look to continue what my family's principles kind of were to be more conservative and make sure that we are leveraging correctly. And so graduated when I was 20, went and worked at some of the best real estate shops in the world and ultimately decided that I needed to go out on my own. Um, you know, it's just more tax efficient. And so uh, started my own company and here I am today. So that's awesome. It's funny because most most people I've talked to on the podcast that, you know, it's like they're coming from some totally unrelated yeah. field, you know, maybe they had a, you know, a parent who was a contractor, maybe their parents had, you know, a duplex or something, but, but your family like legitimately came from <laughs> real estate investing. So that's pretty cool. And, and I actually like, I think worth talking about because I don't, like I said, it's not kind of the norm. And so as you're growing up and you're going through, you know, sort of seeing them, what, what kind of investing were they doing? What, what, what did it look like to you? Or did you just know it was going on and you just kind of, you know, picked it up after college? How did that work? So from a young age, they actually included me, like they made my sister and I go to closings and walkthroughs and they made us do all this boring stuff at the time. Uh, you know, and I'm going to age myself, but there were like no iPads and smartphones. So we had to like go to closing and listen to them talk and wait. And, you know, we had like our coloring books and we had, you know, our regular books that we checked out from the library. And so uh, we grew up around it. My parents never shielded us from the business from a very young age. They started including both my sister and I. My sister's a minority partner in the company now too. 
Um, so we both kind of ended up in this space mainly because I think it's just one, it's a very tax efficient investment. And so I think that that's great. Um, I specifically chose multifamily where my family did residential, um, but we chose multifamily because it's very scalable. And I think that there's less volatility in the multifamily market as well, which is you know great and goes to our conservative nature. So that's how we got here sure that's uh, it's very i mean it's it's very cool i think yeah. and and I, I you have kids right i do i have two two and a half year old uh twin daughters i know i have a, a three-year-old and, and a 10 month old so but no. i i hear like that i hear what your parents did like bringing you to these things and i'm i'm actually very excited for when my kids get even just a little bit older to have them be a part of that and it's like it's just fine you don't have to you don't have to mm -hmm. be in the business necessarily do whatever they want but like just seeing the power of it and kind of getting them involved at a young age i think it obviously sets you up for for a lot of success and so it, you're you're a prime example of that and it, it you know most people are coming from that oh i was a engineer or a whatever you know some other job some other like field, i just yeah. decided to switch to switch careers so that's that's pretty cool um so when you you know when you started Vive funds and you were you know, sort of building the business maybe walk us through some of that process because I, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people the the starting the business treating it as a business building a team that kind of thing talk to you talk to us about that a little bit how you've done it yeah i wish i could say i have like the secret sauce but i feel like i'm still figuring it out too right because every time we do a deal and every time we exit a deal we always learn something new along the way um one of the things that I really focus on in the business is learning from other sponsors or even other business owners, even if they're not even in real estate. I like to see if there's principles we can adapt from someone who runs a restaurant or somebody who owns a laundromat to see kind of how they're operating their business, what they've found to be useful. But I would say anybody who wants to start, one of the biggest mistakes I made that I wish I would have done and a little more diligently because it's much harder retroactively is ensuring you're setting up systems and processes to deal with scale ahead of time, right? So initially it might seem like, okay, I don't really need to invest into some kind of in a CRM, right? I can keep it all in an Excel spreadsheet or I can remember all 10 people I've talked to. But the reality is, is that's not a scalable model. So you wanna invest into those systems and those processes out of the gate so that you're not trying to retroactively install them and get everybody used to them and get everybody's buy-in and get on board with them. Um, so I wish I would have invested more upfront on this software and the systems and the processes and invested the time into developing those because you just get more busy as time goes on. I had a lot more time years ago to develop these things. And now it's like, all right, I have to miss this family function so that I can make sure that this system gets set up. So next time we're not dealing with the same thing again. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, maybe a common theme for, from people that are experienced in there, like you go, but when you're, you're starting out and you're kind of in the thick of it, yes. there's so much going on and you're like, I, well, I can't take a week to yeah. set this system up or even, you know, I can't even, I can't take an hour to set this system up. Yeah. It's kind of, but, but yeah, you know, that's, you know, use the, the sort of 10 person I've talked to 10 people, that's kind of how it starts out. But, yeah. but at this point, you know, you're, you're talking to, hundreds, if not thousands of investors and, you know, institutional investors and things. So you have, you better be on your game and know, know who you're talking to know what, because you're, you're, you're looking for, you know, sort of bigger capital 
exactly. contribution. So it, 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 it makes total sense. It's one of those things that it's like, yes, of course, but then you have to actually do it. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> I should definitely do this. And then it's yeah. like, so things keep yeah. coming up. Um, when we, we talk about, you know, syndication and things like that, there's, there's obviously different hats that people wear, you know, the, the, the deal finder, the, the asset manager, capital raiser, you know, those sort of things. What, what do you do? Are you sort of doing it all? Do you have a, a specific thing that you like to focus on? Kind of what's, what's your niche? Yeah, so I have been JVing with Ellie Perlman from Blue Lake Capital, whom you know, um, and she's been amazing to work with. And both of our companies could run a deal cradle to grave independently, but there's a lot of power in our partnership because we are now redundant, right? So if she has to step out for some reason or I have to step out for some reason, we can always um, come in and kind of cover each other. And it's a seamless process. Investors have no idea who is doing what on any given day, right? Because our teams integrate very seamlessly. So with that, um, I my favorite parts of the deal, and I do a lot of things I don't love doing, but my favorite parts of the deal that I do touch, uh, so I typically will handle uh, due diligence in the acquisition phase. I touch the capital stack pretty significantly on the equity side. So um, I do a lot of the investor facing, uh, anything that is legal for the most part, um, I do the legal and kind of the tax strategy. So I work with our attorneys, I work with our <laughs> professionals as needed um, to make sure that we get everything you know, squared away, that the SEC filings are done correctly, et cetera. Um, and then anything you know on the post-close operations, anything external facing to investors. So when you get your distributions, it's our team that is overseeing that. Um, you know, we're always on time. I I try <laughs> really 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 hard. First-hand experience, they always, <laughs> always come on time. So yeah, that's yeah, I try to set it up like so. It's clockwork. It cuts down on the questions because then no investor. If it, then if investors don't see it by. X day every month, then they reach out to me and they're like, hey, where's my distribution? I can go search for it instead of, you know, making it this way or that way. Then I'll have investors asking me just randomly. So just it streamlines the process. Investors are happy. That's what we're, our goal is. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, great. I, I, I do think, you know, certainly power in, in partnerships and, and the, the two of you are, are absolutely powerhouse in the space. And uh, I, I like being an investor. I like, you know, I, I, did my mentorship with Ellie and I, I just like seeing what you're doing because it's always it for me it's like you know silly but like hashtag goals this is like this is where I want to to build to yeah. to get to that point of just you know what you guys are doing in scale and and how how well it's run so so uh it's fantastic um so since you're focused on due diligence let's let's talk about that kind of what's your process what what are you kind of really narrowed in on as you're looking at these deals yeah so i have like you don't, you don't even want to know i have like a 53 point checklist that i use for our deals um so i you and usually it's it's kind of nuanced right because it has to also align with the psa and what they've agreed to give you in due diligence and sometimes you can like squeeze in a couple more documents depending on who the seller is and the rapport there. Um, but so we, you know, when we start our due diligence process, a vast majority of it happens before we even make an offer on the deal, right? So 
Um, we are verifying comps, we're pulling data, we're looking at our AI softwares to see where they're projecting out. Um, but then once we start the physical due diligence, uh, I usually I head out to the asset on day one and I stay through the due diligence process. I'll typically walk you know, a good percentage of the units just to kind of get a feel for what's going on inside. Um, it's a really great opportunity also for me to talk to the tenants on the asset, kind of see you know, what they like, what they don't like, what they wish there was there, what management's doing, current management is doing correctly or incorrectly. Um, it also gives me a really good opportunity to review lease audits. So I get an opportunity to deep dive and see who are our tenants? How can we make this a better community for them? How can we get the good tenants to refer their friends and family to come live here? Um, so those are more, I think, integrated with due diligence and like the strategic operations side. Um, and then, you know, just learning, like I, I shared with you a couple of things that we learned when we were actually walking the asset that we wouldn't have known. It would have never come up in paperwork. And so th those are the things we look for in due diligence primarily. And then of course you have, you know, your financial reviews and audits and you're making sure everything is ticking and tying. Um, you know, all of your permits are in place, your life and safety, everything is in place. So, um, and then we also track the status of the asset through the acquisition process to make sure that, you know, we're not under contract and then all of a sudden there's double the amount of evictions or the NOI drops by 20% or something like that. So we kind of keep a finger on the pulse to see, you know, what's happening and how it's operating. And are you, that actually brings up a good point relevant to a deal I'm currently looking at when you say that, do you put that in your contracts? Is that in your PSA that some sustaining some level of occupancy and, and, you know, rent collections, things like that, is that, is that something you sort of put in there as, as a, an out clause? Uh, not an out clause, but we do um, make them agree to continue operating within reason. Now, depending on the asset that you're looking at in other, like in other deals that we've done before, um, I've negotiated in, it has to be, if you want to move rents less than X amount of dollars above current rent, um, or if you want to decrease the rent, you need approval from us as the buyer. Yeah. Um, that just ensures, especially if occupancy has maybe been a historical issue, what you don't want them doing is going in and just leasing it up to unqualified tenants. So you can set those metrics and say, if you want to go outside of this, no problem, but you need approval from us first as the buyer. Um, because what you don't want to do is inherit the property with tenants that you now have to deal with and your lending isn't happy about. Yeah, makes total sense. Just, you know, sort of pr protecting yourself on the back end so you don't get come to the closing table or, or <laughs> worse yet, after you've closed, you get over there and find out that things are not not what you anticipated. Um, when you're doing your due diligence, are you, I assume that's when you're kind of forming this the business plan for the value add strategy at, at that point? Not do it? quite. We do okay. that beforehand. Um, okay. So we, before the LOI even goes out, we have a good idea of what the market is doing, what we can do in this asset. Um, we know where generally the highlights of the business plan are. Now, once we get to LOI phase, we'll kind of drill down a little bit deeper. So we might look at, okay, we were planning on just doing flooring and stainless steel, but now that we see what the market is doing, um, we've seen the asset, we think it looks beautiful, but we really need an extra, you know, coat of paint on the outside or the exterior, right? Mm -hmm. So those are things that we might decide a little bit later in, but generally we already know where our value add is coming from. We know what our post-renovated rents will be. We know what the tenant base is like. Uh, so we've done a lot of due diligence by the time we've gone into it. Okay, great. Yeah. So you, I mean, essentially then you're using those walkthroughs and and to really just to look for surprises 
Yeah, that's what it is. You know, it's like trust, but verify. So we're just verifying that they're correct on the, what they're telling us and that everything matches to what we're seeing in the numbers and the financials. Okay. Um, Let, this is, I don't know that I've ever asked anyone about this before, but I think it's relevant to what's happening today in the debt side of things. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing, you know, kind of what are your thoughts in terms of, and you know, I'm sure people here are all hearing, even on, not in the space, interest rates are rising, interest rates are rising. What are you seeing? What are you doing to sort of maybe account for, combat that? You can't, can't really combat the interest rate hikes, but to, to, to uh, kind of incorporate that in your business plan. Yeah, we mitigate that risk. Um, So one, yes, interest rates are rising. It's not really a surprise to anyone. The Fed's told us very clearly that they're going to be raising rates. They've been doing it. Um, We're already seeing it baked into our pricing now. Um, So one of the things, the biggest thing that we're doing is we're buying rate caps and we're spending more money on rate caps than we have historically uh, to ensure that the rate cap can't adjust above the whatever the cap is, right? So the interest rate can't adjust above whatever the rate cap we buy is. So that's number one. Um, Number two, we're leveraging a little bit less. Um, So we're entering an asset, for example, right now, where we're leveraging at 65%, which is about 10% less than we normally would. The challenge there is when you bring more equity to a deal, typically you see a constraint on cash flow during the hold period, because now you're paying out more equity but it really, the trade-off makes sense, at least in my opinion, because it's more conservative for investors and it protects them from downside. So as of right now, at this point in the market cycle, we are protecting downside. We're not chasing upside. We'll protect downside and let the upside take care of itself. Um, So I think being really true to those metrics, not changing numbers to make the deal work. Uh, you know, if you put garbage in, you'll get garbage out. So continue making sure that you are staying true to who you are as a sponsor, what you believe to be actually conservative is. Um, and then lastly, one of the biggest misses I see on new investors, especially right now, is there's no trend upward of interest rates over time on an adjustable rate or a bridge product. So if you're going in today and you have a three and a, let's say it's three and a half percent is your rate today, you'll want to trend that upward toward your cap or all the way up to your cap over the next six months, year, two years. So you're baking in that um, change. And then also same thing with um, insurance and taxes to make sure that you're allocating high enough for that, because otherwise you'll run into an issue with cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. The, all of those, you know, all of those expenses, yeah. even from a year ago, two years ago, were sort of dramatically higher. And, and those are the, those are the big ones. Those are the big line items. So it right. um, makes a ton of sense to just, if you're, if you're truly being conservative, then, then be conservative and put, you know, realize that those numbers are very likely to go up. Yeah. Um, so when you're, once you, get a deal under contract in your, you've got your property management in place and everything like that. How are you, what does that look like to you? How do you guys work that, you know, relationship with the property management group? Um, I know it's typical to have, you know, sort of meetings and things like that, but, but as, as a team that has, you know, been very successful, had very large, uh, very large deals, what are you, what are you doing? What are some of the tips and tricks that you use? Um, as it relates to property management, we are very, very hands-on asset managers. Uh, so 
you know, on our deals, Ellie and I are constantly tracking the progress of the asset. We both have eyes on the asset. If there's any deviation from our business plan or any deviation from the cash flow that we're expecting in a month, one or both of us jumps in or we're talking about it and strategizing around like, hey, what should we be doing? What What's going wrong? How can we course correct back? Because what happens is if you start to veer off course just a little bit over the course of five years, you're really far off yeah. path. So you have to kind of catch it and then course correct back onto course right away. And so um, we're just very, very active and hands-on asset managers. Uh, we like to, we'll show up and we'll surprise the property when one of us goes out there just to, so they know that we're not hands-off owners. We're not going to just turn it over to them and let them run wild and free. Um, we also make sure that we train them to think like owners right when we get in there, right? So when you have property management, it's fee managed. Uh, what usually happens is they want to keep enough cash back to pay future bills, which is great. And, you know, from a personal finance standpoint, we're like, oh, okay, that's good. You should have enough to pay your bills. But what happens when you're operating an asset is you're only accounting for future bills, but you're not taking into account the future income. So you have to take in the AR alongside the AP if you're going to handle it that way. So we actually really focus above like NOI, occupancy, all of that. We actually focus at the free cash flow level. So what is my cash flow available at the end of every month to investors? Because I have to make my distributions on time. So uh, I need to know what that number is. And I need to know that that's what we're tracking to. So we kind of really drive the focus there versus just occupancy, NOI, lease renewal, stuff like that. We want to see the total dollars out of the account. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It, I mean, ultimately as a, as a sponsor, you're, if you're doing it right, your, your commitment or your, you know, your goal is to, to make your investors happy to, to, get those distributions out. And so if you look at it from that perspective, then that cash flow tracking is is 100%, you know, where you should be looking. That, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Um that yeah, that's great. I I've, I'm sure there's so many <laughs> so many tips and tricks that you have to all of this that would <laughs> would be super helpful to people. Um I will uh, so I don't keep you all day. I will switch gears here to the to the part where we uh, will ask you the questions that I like to ask each guest. Okay. Um, the first one is related to the na name of the show being Know Your Why. So, you know, what is your why? What what pushes you towards this level of success and keeps you going? My family, my girls, I have daughters, and it's really important to me that they see women in positions that are historically male dominated, and so. Uh, you know, it's important that they have role models that they can look up to. And I always tell, I always tease Ellie. I'm like, I'm going to send my girls to come and work for Ellie auntie because she's going to be much meaner than mama will be. So, uh, but yeah, my kids are absolutely my why, my husband, my family. Yeah. Yeah. Makes, I can relate. Mm -hmm. um, tell us something about yourself that maybe isn't common knowledge, maybe a special skill or a hobby or something that you, uh, that you don't mind sharing. Oh man, I was just on Ellie's podcast and I told her one that I never shared before and she was totally shocked by it. But I told her I can I can speak pig Latin fluently. And that is because when my sister and I were little, we had to think of a way to speak around my parents so they couldn't understand us. And so we learned how to speak pig Latin. <laughs> That's amazing and also kind of amazing to me that she didn't know that 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 wouldn't be a, been a thing that came up along the way that's very funny yeah i can't imagine why it didn't come up <laughs> yeah um the, uh, on, kind of on that note i 
maybe let's just talk about Clubhouse a little bit. We talked a little bit before we started recording. I know you're very active. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously people use people use social media. It's a, it's a big part of business. It's a big part of, you know, sort of getting yourself out there and known. How do you feel that Clubhouse has helped you in terms of your business, maybe attracting investors, all of that? What, what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I actually don't get that many like new investors from Clubhouse. A lot of times it's my current investors that just want to hear like what we're seeing in the market or how we're thinking of things right now. They just kind of want to keep that open like, line of communication or information flowing. Um, really, the reason I stay on Clubhouse is because I feel like it's such a powerful tool to be able to. Uh -oh. believe that we have to help other people that are trying to do what we're doing or who are just starting out. And so it's the only way for them to get that kind of access because they might not be in a room with me at any time in their lives. And so I like to keep that access open, but also limited to just like one area of my life. So it doesn't right. overwhelm me. Um, and then two, I learn from other operators, other sponsors, other business owners, how they're operating their business and, you know, about new products or new trends or things we can do better or new markets they are entering. So I like to kind of see what, you know, the people are doing. Yeah. Well, and and. and it may be, maybe it doesn't get you a lot of new investors, but if your current investors are listening and hearing you, you know, sort of put out your expertise in these rooms on Clubhouse, it, it probably impacts them as to whether or not they want to reinvest. You know, so now they've got, they're getting to know you better. They've got, they're seeing, okay, great. She, you know, the, the properties are performing well, which is obviously very important, but also she really knows what she's talking about, you know, and, and they can yeah. listen and kind of, you know, get, get a little peek into to that side of you. So that that's pretty cool. Um, if people, when people hear this, how, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, you can find me on my website, vivefunds.com, V-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. Or I'm on all the social media as Vina Jetty. So you can find me on social media as well. Perfect. Final question, Vina. What piece of advice would you give to someone who is getting started and, and you know, sort of looking to achieve that level of success that you have? Oh gosh, there's like so many things I would do differently if I could go back and tell younger me. Um, I think the big one for right now where we are in the market cycle is just be patient. Do not be aggressive in your assumptions. If you do one deal that is not a great deal or a good deal or that doesn't end up okay, you're going to have a very short career. So make sure you're choosing your investments right. Be quick to say no, be slow to say yes take your time, really understand the numbers and how they all work with each other, especially if you're raising other people's capital. It's a huge responsibility and it's a huge undertaking. And you want to make sure that you're treating them the way you would want to be treated if your hard-earned dollars were in an asset. So, you know, for us, everything starts and stops with how LPs will be treated, what their returns will be, what their experience is like. And so keeping LP investors at the focus has actually led to a high reinvestment rate. It's led to our investors being happy, they refer their friends and family to us, which is the highest compliment we could expect. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think that's a fantastic piece of advice. And I, I think it's actually encouraging that you started that with, oh, there's so many things I would have done differently, <laughs> mistakes I made, and yeah. yet still you're extremely successful. So it goes to show, you know, it's okay. You can make a mistake here or there and, and still recover from that and still have a great career. So yeah. um it's great. Thank, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. It's, it's been fantastic. Of course. Thank you for having me.
Absolutely. All right, we'll go ahead and sign off. Have a great day, everyone. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.